then the padre got out of the car and he introduced himself as the padre and I looked at him and I remember thinking well I'm fucked that's it they don't bring a padre to tell you that someone's hurt themselves this is serious Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battles. The story of transformation is powerful. Welcome to the last of our Partners episodes for Season 4. This conversation is between Thomas Kay and Renee Wilson. Renee is the wife of Gary Wilson. Tom spoke to Gary about his military career, including his Afghanistan deployment with the 2nd Commando Regiment and the 21 June 2010 Black Hawk helicopter crash. That episode was number 100, Gary Wilson. In the three months I'd lost half my body weight, I was below 50 kilos and with this nurse put me back in bed. She has, Mr. Wilson, you're in a helicopter crash. This is Tom's conversation with Renee about her relationship with Gary, the challenges they face together, and the inspiring story of what they've overcome. I'm Thomas Kay, speaking today with Renee Wilson. Renee, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for joining us. So to kick us off, tell us about how you and Gary met. So I take it you've already heard this from Gary, so it'll be interesting to compare notes. So Gary and I met in Canberra, where we currently live. I was coming down, I had just moved to Canberra for a short period of time. I'd been successful in getting a clerkship with one of the government departments, which I was really excited about because I was still at uni at the time. So it was only intended to be a three-month stint here in Canberra. I think I was in my third week or something like that. And unfortunately for me, I didn't really get along with the group of other summer clerks that had been joined the program and I didn't spend a lot of time with them outside of work but this particular night for whatever reason decided that I needed to just do it and bite the bullet. So I did and we went out to a few different places and ended up in one particular pub here in Canberra. One of the girls I was with was known for coming into work on a Monday and telling us all about her escapades in Canberra and she naturally made us all a little bit concerned for her. And for what she was up to, given it was her first time out of home, as it was for the majority of us, she decided that she was going to go in and get everyone some drinks. She goes in. About half an hour later, we realised she's not back. And I decided to go in and find her. And I found her talking to this group of about 10 guys. Some of them looked a little bit dodgy. A couple of them had tattoos. Some of them were well-built, a bit muscular. I didn't quite understand You know how you can look at people and you stereotype and you're like, oh, that's a group of whatever. They didn't stick out to me as a particular group of of anything. And she was talking to Gary's friend and I think Gary as well, actually. And so my mission in going in there was to rescue her from this group um, and to extract her slowly. 
then Gary and I started to talk and he asked where I was from and I told him I was from the Gold Coast and then he started to have a few choice words about the Gold Coast and you're laughing so I know he's told you this. Oh, maybe. (laughs) He said it was all shit because at the time the Gold Coast was having some trouble with bikies so they didn't like people with visible tattoos coming into nightclubs. He'd gotten into a scuffle I think with a bouncer And so that had really coloured his view of the Gold Coast and he decided that he hated it and everyone from the Gold Coast was shit. So I told him to quite nicely to uh, get fucked and that sounds like it was his problem and if he knew the rules, he should have just abided by the rules and I walked off and I was done. And then about, I don't know, period of time later, I saw him and his friends start to come out. We were sitting outside him and his friends were looking around and I saw him look in my direction. I actually sunk down in my seat because I was like, you better not be looking for me. I'm done. Like you're a dick. Leave me alone. And it turns out he was. And for some reason I decided to sit there and talk to him. And then it was like, there was no fight at all. And we just talked for hours. All of the people that I was with went home and I don't even remember them leaving. So the rest is history. What was it like being in a relationship with someone in the army and then later on um, an army wife? The short answer to your question is I don't actually know because I never really gave it much thought. I was asked the question a lot in the early days in particular when we were living here in Canberra because we were still a fairly new relationship and at that point in time the Afghanistan war was just kicking off and a few of the the friends that I had at the time in particular kept asking me, well, I don't know how you can date someone in the army and take it seriously because, you know, they're going to war and you don't know what that's going to mean. And I remember the response I had at the time was just simple. It was like, well, I can't actually help this. I've fallen in love with him and you can't help who you fall in love with. So if that's what he does, then that's okay. I never really gave it too much thought, I guess, until we got to Sydney where he was part of the commando regiment. So I don't really have anything else to compare it to. So I don't know what it was like with regular army or the other services, but I know that the commandos, particularly at the time because of the Afghanistan war, were taking an active interest in involving families and particularly the, you know, the new families that come into the regiment, the new families that are involved with when people get allocated into a platoon and they're getting ready to deploy to explain to families exactly what's going on, exactly what they can expect, and that they will be asking a lot from their loved one and that they need us and what our role is in helping, I guess, the the war effort. So that was the first time where I really actually thought about it. And I still probably remained quite arm's length from the whole thing. I found what Gary would do and talk about in terms of his service and the way he would talk about his service very odd. I realised very quickly that I'm probably not someone that would have ever done well in the military because I like to colour outside the lines a bit. For instance, there was little things where stuff would happen at home and he'd be like, I need to tell my boss. And I'm like, why? He gives a shit. They don't control back here. And he's like, no, they do. And I'm like, and I just couldn't, I struggled to get my head around that there is no divide for quite some time. And in particular, as the operational tempo increased and it had more demands sort of on our relationship, he was in the lead up to his deployment. I thought we would get to spend some time together because he was about to go for six months, but that was not the case at all. He was off in South Australia and God knows where for how long. And I struggled with that for a bit. It caused a bit of friction between us because I struggled to understand. We weren't being thought of because Army came first. Whenever I tried to talk to him about it, that's exactly what would come out of his mouth. 
I did struggle to put that into context a little bit in those early days, particularly as he was moving from readiness exercise to readiness exercise. And then I think at one point he was even doing the counterterrorism stuff and, you know, he was going to get a phone call at some point one weekend and just had to drop everything and go. So, you know, for me, the whole thing about not being able to make plans, I found odd. I probably didn't jump in boots and all until I had to, which was after his accident when he was completely incapacitated. And that's when I got a baptism of fire into everything army related. That divide would be difficult on anybody, the being in a relationship and then you know, married as well later on and having that where the army always comes first over everything. So was it after the accident that things started to clear up for you and you understood or? Absolutely. And I think what that was is because I was exposed in a very real sense to the army family and what it meant for him to be part of that. The way that the news of the accident reverberated across the community and because Gary was in a trade that was tri-service as well, so I I would even expand it into the broader defence community, you know, the way that people kind of reached out and virtually or quite literally wrapped their arms around our family and what was happening to us, I really started to understand. I still struggle to put it into the right words because the right words doesn't give it the right level of meaning, but I definitely started to know what he knew all along. We had the anniversary of the accident just last Sunday and I sent a message to a couple of the people that were really instrumental and really helped in those early days, his mother and I in particular, and I reflected to them that and they showed me exactly what Gary already knew and that was no matter what, we were never going to walk alone ever again. And so I think once I sort of felt that, that's when things started to, to shift for me. Tell us what it was like when you found out that Gary was going to be sent to Afghanistan with the 2nd Commando Regiment. I was scared, but I was also a bit comforted by the fact that not being a beret qualified commando meant, at least the story I told myself, meant that he was never going to be really in the front line, that he had, I didn't know much about his job, but I knew it was important. And I knew that whenever he went out, he was to be protected. So that kind of gave me a level of comfort and the whole deployment, you would kind of go on ups and downs and ebbs and flows in terms of how you were feeling about things and whether you had a sense of confidence in terms of their safety and his safety. You'd be okay if you got a communication, whether it was an email or a phone call, or even turning up to a family day at the regiment and seeing a photo was normally enough to sort of push you through for a couple of weeks and go, everything's fine, everything's fine. But it was always in the back of your mind. The accident was not in the back of my mind whatsoever. I was thinking about things, IEDs, because they were quite prolific at the time, gunshots, bombs, that sort of stuff. But the accident, it was a shock because of what it was. How did the two of you keep in touch while he was over there? Primarily kept in touch through emails and phone calls. So he would normally always call me before they were about to go outside the wire, though he wouldn't say that. The conversation would be very coy around, I'll talk to you in a few days or just going camping with the boys. But there was not a lot of, it was more me doing a lot of the talking like it is here. (laughs) But I was also very careful what I told him because I never wanted him to worry about me. I wanted him to focus on what he was doing because he had an important job to look after the guys he was with. As they all did, they had a fundamentally important role. 
they were very routine, very superficial conversations, but it didn't matter. It was more just just making that connection. And if he hadn't been able to call, he would normally sort of shoot me an email at some point throughout the day that I would I would get, which would be nice. Did you ever find it tough not being able to be able to make the first contact or pick up the phone and just ring him? Absolutely. Particularly when it had been a week or two or there had been an extended period of time in between, not just being able to send a message. Or I would, I would send an email, but not being able just to pick up the phone and talk to him and just know that I just had to sit with that was a bit uncomfortable. And the longer I had to sit with that, the more uncomfortable I became and the more that I started to worry. What are your memories of the Black Hawk accident? Two days prior to the accident, he had called just before dinner, I think. So he only had a short period of time to talk. And he'd promised he was going to call me back and he didn't. So then, you know, the Sunday rolled around and I didn't get a call. So I was expecting a call or an email on the Monday. I knew that they had to go out and do something. And it was around about Monday that they were supposed to go. So I was actually expecting an email to come back in from him on Monday to tell me that, yeah, we had a quick mission. I'm really sorry I didn't call you again because I'd already blasted him once before in his trip for not calling me <laughs> before he went out and, you know, did the whole, the whole guilt trip about, you know, what if you didn't come back and we didn't get a chance to talk and how dare you do that to me? And, and it turns out that trip he was on was, it was a good couple of week event that he was on. I think it might've been the Battle of Shualikot when he was out in that. At some point they'd gotten to an outpost and because he hadn't called me before he'd left, I had found out through my own spouse network that they were already out and about. So I wasn't happy. And I just, he was trying to send me emails and I wasn't answering. So he was like emailing my auntie and texting my cousin. And I'm like, I'm not answering him. He can just fuck off. <laughs> um, so he ended up getting a hold of a sat phone <laughs> um, just to make sure I was okay. <laughs> So I think I'd scared the pants off him. So when he didn't call, I was expecting him to sort of come calling back with his tail between his legs again on that Monday. But I hadn't heard anything. I was finishing up work for the day and I decided that I would just quickly check the news because it was also the week after another couple of deaths in Afghanistan that really, I don't know why, but they seemed to really hit home for me. In particular, one of the guys that died was engaged to be married. They were due to be married around the same time Gary and I were due to be married. And I just found out the story of his fiancé that weekend prior. So it was really, it was weighing heavy. So I decided to check the news, just no particular reason. Hadn't seen an email from Gary. Checked my other emails. Hadn't seen one come in on work or my personal emails. Checked the news and saw a news banner, Special Operations Task Group, mass casualty in Afghanistan, press conference, 5pm. And I just almost froze for a second because I knew it was them. So even if it wasn't Gary, I knew that it was people I knew. I knew that it was families I knew. I knew it was his platoon. So at the time I was working in the centre of Sydney and Martin Place right across from Channel 7, I was walking out of the office. With that, I just basically packed up everything and just walked straight out of the office. And I rang mum and I'm standing in the lift well before I get in the lifts because I was worried the phone was going to cut out. And I was already crying and she, she was like, well, are they at your work? And I'm like, I don't think so. I haven't heard anything. So I went down to reception and checked. I'm like, no, no one's here. She reassured me that, you know, if 
what did they say? No news is good news. You haven't heard anything. They promised you the media wouldn't find out before you did. So chances are he's okay. I'm like, right, can you just watch the press conference at five o'clock, please? Because I'll be on the train. I need to know what's going on. And she said, yeah, no worries. So I hung up, walked out of the building, saw the same headline rolling around the Channel 7 building, and then started making my way to the train station as fast as I could. On the way down, I just couldn't let go of this gut feel. And so I rang Gary's mum. I told her what I'd seen. I asked her to watch the press conference. I don't know why I'm asking all these people to watch the press conference, but I asked her to watch it. And I also asked whether people were at her house or if people had called her and she said no. So that gave me a little, well, it should have given me comfort, but it didn't. Then I rang Gary's friend who I knew worked in intelligence and was hoping that if he'd heard something, he'd break the law for me. Um, but you know either and still to this day he either hasn't broken the law or he didn't hear anything um but he he was like I don't know what you're talking about I haven't heard anything you know same reassurances coming through they weren't at your work they know where you work they're not at Margaret's house it's okay I'll tell you when I hear something so I'm walking into the train station at that point going, okay, I think, I think we're all right. Like, just relax. No one's trying to find you. You're okay. Walking onto the train platform, walking up the stairs, and I get a phone call from a private number. What I expected to hear was Gary's voice on the other end of the line telling me something bad has happened. He will call me when he can, but he's okay and hang up. So I was expecting Gary. I answered the phone and all I heard was major, blah, blah, second commando regiment, we're at your house. And it was like everything just stopped. You see those scenes in the movies where it's almost like you can't hear anything, everything's slow motion, there's people around you, but you're like in this bubble. It's exactly what happened. I only tuned back in when I wasn't answering him and he was trying to get my attention on the other end of the phone. And I just immediately started to, to sort of panic um, and he wanted to know where I was and I said to him, well, no, I want you to tell me it, it's not Gary. Tell me it's not him. I want to know that it's not him. And I just kept doing this over and over and he, he kept saying, where are you? I need to find you. Where are you? I think eventually he realised he wasn't going to get anywhere. I do remember actually telling him, I am not telling you where I am until you tell me what's going on because I'm not getting on a train to wait 40 minutes for you to tell me that he's dead. Like, it's not happening, you tell me now. At which point he said, look, it's, it's not him, but we need to have a chat. And I remember, like, my knees went weak. I kind of almost collapsed down onto the platform for a second before I realised that that was my train pulling up and if I didn't get on, I wouldn't be finding anything out quick enough so gathered myself back up and and put myself on the train and told them where they could meet me and the train on the way home I was getting the phone calls back in from both my mum and Gary's mum to tell me what had gone on which is how I found out what had happened the hardest conversation I, I had to have that afternoon was talking to his mum and hearing her try to reassure me that it wasn't Gary he wasn't involved telling me sort of verbatim what the CDF had said about the guys who had passed away. And I just had to interrupt her and tell her that he was involved somehow and I, I didn't know anything yet. And she just went dead silent, clearly in shock. 
she has always been a pillar of support for her family and loves a chat. So to hear her go dead silent was scary in and of itself. What was it like when um, you actually sat down with them when they broke the news to you? Uh, Well, they met me at the train station. And by that point, I had pretty much convinced myself because I knew that there were seven injured, two were critical, and five were relatively okay. So I'd convinced myself he was part of the five and that this was just how they notify people when people are injured because I didn't know. They didn't tell us that part. So I remember the Gary's officer commanding got out of the car and he was in his uniform. I'm like, yeah, I expect that. Like, that's fine. Then the Padre got out of the car and he introduced himself as the Padre. And I looked at him and I remember thinking, well, I'm fucked. That's it. They don't bring a Padre to tell you that someone's hurt themselves. This is serious. They told me as much as they knew on the drive back to our house because it was Sydney peak hour at the time and we were trying to get through Parramatta. So what was supposed to be a 10-minute drive took nearly an hour. But they told me what they knew and and they just didn't know enough. They knew that he was, they were calling it very serious. I didn't know that very serious meant critical. I didn't know that defence had different classifications for injuries to everyone else. (laughs) So that gave me a little bit of comfort, to tell you the truth. The, The naivety in that gave me a real sense of comfort that, you know, okay, he's not critical, he's very serious, but that actually wasn't the case at all. And I got a phone call again from a private number on my phone. And this was Gary's debt commander at the time calling me from Afghanistan. And I said to him, he's like, are they with you yet? And I said, yes, they are. I'm in the car with them. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to get him in trouble. (laughs) So he was calling to tell me everything he could. And I'm like, he's like, he's in the car with you. I'm like, you're boss, dude. (laughs) it's your boss and he's going and then he's driving he's like who is it I'm like I don't know (laughs) Um, because they weren't supposed to be on the phone I'm like you are not supposed to be on the phone he's like I don't care I need to talk to you I need to tell you this stuff and he was the one that told me he had brain injuries and he said you need to tell them to get you to Germany yesterday Like it's happening and it's happening as fast as possible. These are the people that I'm trying to get to meet you in Germany. And he was trying to get stuff moving as quickly as he could. So that there was awkward. And then I had to get off the phone and I'm like, so he's got brain injuries. And they're like, oh, okay. All right. Well, we didn't know that. Although the media wasn't supposed to know anything before people were being notified, unfortunately, in this situation, we were all being notified as it was going to air including the widows, which is just terrible. But it was a coalition accident. News was already leaking in the US and defence had to move. They had to, to do what they could to control. And it was such a complex situation with families spread all across the country that a unit based in Sydney just had to mobilise. I look back on it now and I can see that they did the best they could with what they had and in particular with Gary where the outcome was so unknown that they were just going minute by minute trying to find information. So they actually didn't know what his injuries were when they came to talk to me, but they were expecting bereavement. And Officer Commanding actually took a call when we got back to my house. He was expecting that call to be like, okay, it's it's happened this is what's gone on. He's passed away. But I remember the relief on his face when he walked back into the lounge room and he's like, 
he's stabilised and the, the medical team has reassessed him. They're thinking he's, he's doing okay at the moment and just the sheer relief on his face sticks with me a lot. But he wouldn't let me stay by myself that night. I think just in case. So I had to, thankfully I had family in Sydney that I, I had to, to leave and to go and stay with them. And then Gary's mum came in the following day. So after that, he was satisfied that I wasn't by myself. Did anyone get in trouble for telling you on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> did, no, did no now? one got into trouble actually, which is funny because we were living uh, in a defence house, a defence townhouse at the time, defence housing house, and all of the row was all defence members. I found out subsequently because when they, I got into the car at the train station, one of the windows was smashed and it turns out that when the major had and the padre had turned up to our house, they were trying to get in and they couldn't because it was a secure gate, which is when he had called to find out where I was and hadn't realised that he'd locked his keys in the car. So at the same time, one of the guys who actually worked at the regiment, who was a car mechanic or was a mechanic at the regiment, had turned come home and he had seen padre and a major at the front in pollies. He knew exactly what was going on and he knew that Gary was away. And so he's gone straight up to them to find out what's going on and how he can help. And the manager told him that he just locked the keys in the car and that I was at a train station and he needed to get to me. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, I'm a mechanic at the regiment. He's like, good, can you help me get the keys out? Because I need to get them out like right now. He's like, yeah, no worries. I'll just get some tools. And he takes off and he goes, with a hammer. And he's like, this is the only thing I could find so quickly, sir. He's like, it's all right. And he just smashed the window. Uh, he's like, oh, I'll fix that tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so, so no, he didn't get in. Uh, no one got into trouble for breaking cars that night. No one got into trouble for calling that night. I think just the gravity of it and the way it affected all of them. I even, you know, I had a phone call from the medic who was a really good friend of Gary's and mine at midnight that night just to tell me that he'd been with him all day and and he's not going to leave him and like just to I think just touch base and check on me he didn't give me a lot of information but he also shouldn't have been calling the strong moral compass about just doing what is right in the circumstances and the integrity is something that has always been there with with the people we've interacted with from there not long after you found your way um, over to Germany was it just yourself that traveled over to see him no, because of Gary's condition, um, well, Margaret, we're a little bit similar, which is, I guess, a little bit scary in a way for Gary at least. But she called to tell me that she'd, booked, like, again, I think, you know, 10 o'clock that night, that she'd booked a flight to Sydney and what time she was arriving the next day. As soon as I told Gary's boss, he had someone at the airport waiting to pick her up. Um, so I didn't need to worry about any of that. But she said to me over the phone, she said, you tell those bastards I'm fucking coming to Germany. I don't care. I'm coming. They need to make room for me. I will pay if I need to pay. I don't care. I'm coming. Tried to almost warn Gary's boss when I, I met him the next morning that, you know, Gary's mum is a, it's a force of nature and she's coming to Germany and there will be no questions. And he said, oh, that's more than okay. <laughs> she doesn't need to pay and we're paying because of Gary's condition. Two next of kins are going. So that... <laughs> that was good good you didn't have to have that conversation no no I didn't for both of us we both had a lot of respect for each other which I think really helped on that trip we knew each other but obviously not as well as we do now but you know and I was Gary's fiance at the time we'd been together for I think a couple of years and we hadn't really spent a lot of time together but we both respected each other's position 
you know, right up front, I said to her, I'm not going, I, I want us to make all joint decisions because technically on all the paperwork, I was Gary's next kin. But I said to her, you are his mother and we will do this together. And I think that that really helped because we kind of then from that moment on were there for each other as well as Gary. And that's pretty much how the whole trip went and how it's been ever since. What was it like when you got there and found out the extent of the injuries? It was a mix of feelings. I was initially quite excited to see him because I hadn't seen him for such a long time. And when I saw him, he looked exactly the same. He looked a bit more tanned. He just looked like he was asleep. It probably wasn't until as soon as we got there, they, the doctors almost jumped us and were like, we need to do a tracheotomy and we need to put a tube into his stomach because these tubes in his mouth are, you know, need to come out. He's starting to get pneumonia. His lungs are starting to collapse. Like this can't happen. So we basically just kind of signed off on that and then we kicked out. And it wasn't until after that procedure that they'd kind of really said, look, we don't actually know in terms of the prognosis here and we're not actually equipped to give you too much detail anyway because we're just basically a trauma recovery hospital. You'll get the more detailed information about what's going on with him when you get home. But they did their best and they explained the injuries to us. They pretty much only explained his brain injury because that was the most significant It wasn't until we got back to Australia I learned about all of the breaks in his body and in particular how bad his foot was, which is not what I was expecting. I saw them package him up when they were getting ready to send him back to Australia, but I didn't know the extent of the the other physical injuries. We really only talked about the brain injury. And one of the medical registrars had said, this is a waiting game. We have no idea what's going to happen here. He could stay the way he is on full life support or he could make a full recovery and we can't tell you where he's going to fall in between that. I remember at that point just almost I was sitting down, I'd almost collapsed into my hands, I was shaking and I I thought to myself, what am I going to do if they say we need to make a decision about whether we keep the machines on? Because I knew Gary's mum would probably look at it a bit more realistically than I would and would be willing, if necessary, to take their advice, whereas I wanted to just see what would happen. I realised I didn't want to have that conversation with her. I didn't want to have that conversation with anyone, so I put it out of my mind straight away. We're not going to be asked that question. Don't even bother thinking about it. We just need positivity and hope in this room. I made a rule at that point. I said to Gary's mum, if you need to cry, you do it outside. If we need to talk about his prognosis, we do it outside. If anyone comes in here, they're not allowed to cry. They're not allowed to talk negatively about his condition. We only want hope in this room. That's pretty much how we we kept it all throughout when sort of his journey when we came back to Australia as well. And everyone that came next to the bed knew that they weren't to feel sorry for him. It was all about that he could recover. On that stance on sort of only positivity in here, Do you feel it made a big difference? Something did. And something did that we just can't explain. So in Germany, in the trauma hospital, Gary's mum and I were in there one afternoon. They used to turn the lights down in Gary's room as well just to sort of keep him calm. And we were in there one afternoon. A padre came in to the room 
and he was a US padre. He introduced himself. He said, I'm a padre here on the base. My name's Father Love. I'm like, you got to be shitting me. And I looked at his name tag and it was. And I was like, oh, okay. He said, I've been keeping an eye on him. Has he been anointed yet? And I said, no. And he said, would you like me to? And I looked at Gary's mum and she's like, oh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay. I was like, yeah, well, we've got nothing to lose, do we? So go for it. And he said, okay, I'll come back and I'll get my oils, my worries. He came back very quickly. When I remember it, I noticed that the nurse is not there for some reason. Then he says to me, I'm going to anoint him for healing. I'm not going to give him his last rites. And he said, and I'm going to give you this medallion of, I think it was St. Christopher. God, I'm a bad Catholic. Anyway, (laughs) I'm going to give you this medallion. I've still got it. I should probably check. Which will be sort of the guardian angel watching over him, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. So he does it. Then he leaves. And it's kind of like the way I remember it is kind of, you know, he leaves, everything kind of starts going back to normal type thing. Within about 24 hours after that, Gary starts to show signs of progress like very minute signs in those first days, but starts to show signs of progress, starts to open his eyes like the tiniest little bit for an hour a day. And the doctors and nurses are quite excited by what they're seeing. They're telling me this is potentially the start of him coming out. So Gary's mum and I go on a mission to find Father Love and we go to the chapel, chapel's closed, we ask around. No one knows of him. Well, at least the people we asked. I don't know. I don't know, but something was going on. Gary ought not have survived the injuries he had. Every time he talks to a neurologist, a neuropsych, no one can believe he is as well as he is given where he was at. At the time I was working at the Crown Solicitor's Office and we were the solicitors that helped the coroner investigate deaths, the types of injuries he had, people died from less, the positivity, the hope the thoughts and prayers of everyone, people sending those positive thoughts you hear and you read about, you know, the woo-woo stuff of people sending positive vibes to other people. I I don't know, but I know that something went on that we can't explain. So it must have been a huge relief when he woke up from his coma and actually came to. Look, it doesn't happen like it does in the movies. (laughs) The naivety as well that I had at the time really protected me. I thought it was quite literally just open your eyes and back to normal. But it was nothing like that at all. It was a very slow and gradual process. I was talking to Gary about this the other day. You know, even when we got back to Australia, he kind of, he wasn't able to progress as quickly as I think he would have because they needed to sedate him quite heavily to keep his body calm, to bring him back. And then it takes a few days for that sedation to wear off. And then he almost kind of went back to square one with where he was at in terms of making the progress. But it was a very gradual opening of his eyes. When they were open, it was vacant. There was nothing there. And you knew because he was just, he was somewhere else. He wasn't in the room with you. And maybe he'd keep his eyes open for an hour or so a day at that point. And then there'd be a day where all of a sudden he'd look at you you would know that he was recognising you or he would respond to something that you had said or he'd be responding to what was happening around him. That was a short window. So it kind of became, it gave you something every day to look forward to the next day. What's he going to do today? 
And when we got back to Australia, the visitation was very strict because we're in a civilian hospital and we can't just come and go as we please into the intensive care ward. It's two people at a time because, you know, fair one rule for everyone, not just for the military guys in the corner. So we were having to take it sort of in turns and, and roll in and out. Particularly in those early days, it was everyone that would go in there when I wasn't in there. I'd be like, what did he do? Did you see him do something? Did he respond to you? Did he look at you? Did he? And it was probably halfway through his stay at Westmead that I, I kind of realized that Gary was in there. He was just trapped inside a body that wasn't working. And it was quite confronting to sort of see him, see the brain almost reconnect everything back together again. I was okay because every sign was a, a brilliant sign to me that he was going to get better and going to get well. But I think they call it um, the neurological storming, which is a whole bunch of involuntary movements as the brain's reconnecting and relearning. And it can be quite confronting in, for some people, including him constantly trying to escape the bed he was in. But him trying to escape the bed is medically very good. Um, so I was excited by that. It didn't bother me in the slightest. In fact, I used to sit there and hold his restraint and undo it so that he could move and try to sort of roll out of the bed and I'd let him get so far and then just tug it and he'd fall back and have to start all over again. When you heard that he tried making a break for it. <laughs> yep. Were you like, okay, great, that's a huge leap when he got out of his bed and tried running for it? but. Well, not quite because he couldn't walk. And again, it was very gradual. So when he was in Westmead, he was almost trying to roll out of the bed. He had enough awareness to know that half of his, one side of his body wasn't working, but the head nurse found him sort of almost one arm, one leg, all the way hooked over the bed. It wasn't until he, he got to the rehab hospital that that really started to pick up. His first night in the rehab hospital, the rehab hospital, even though they're a rehab hospital and they're a brain trauma rehab wing where he was in just wasn't really equipped for him. I was a little bit nervous leaving him there the first night because of how active he was and, and how active that storming was and that he was always restrained in the bed at Westmead and they were like, nah, he'll be fine. I'm like, I, I don't think he is. I think you need to have someone with him. So I kicked up a bit of a stink that night and they ended up having to bring someone in and they weren't happy about it. But the next morning I walked in and I see a bed as I'm walking in and it's the rail is sort of almost pushed flat, it's a little bit bent. There was foam on there. I'm like, that looks like the bed Gary was in because they had that thick egg carton rubber foam on either side. So if he did roll around, he wouldn't hurt himself. It was torn. And I'm like, what is like, geez, that's no good. And then I walked down to his room and he's on a mattress on the floor. And I'm like, the second in charge doctor's in the room watching him. And I'm like, what is going on? Where is his bed? He's like, it's out there. And I'm like, you are kidding me. He did that to the bed. He's like, yes. So we've got him on the floor until he calms down. <laughs> so he doesn't hurt himself. And I'm like, right. And he's like, don't worry. This is relatively normal. This is what we expect to see. And I'm like, okay. But it wasn't until he tells the story of when he sort of had his first conscious memory. So all of this stuff he doesn't remember, which is when he tried to get out of the wheelchair and actually run away. But that was quite late in the piece. It was a very, very gradual journey. It probably took about eight weeks all up. With the recovery journey, that is going to last a long time afterwards. 
Can you tell us about the next few months and years and everything in between after you left of what the recovery was like, not just for Gary, but also for yourself? So I call it a gradual journey, but in actual fact, it's quite fast, which again is a good thing. One of the doctors at Westmead, he was the doctor in charge of the intensive care ward and was really the one that sat me down and explained to me what was happening with Gary and his brain injury and with his foot as well. He said, look, if he's going to do well, he will do well really, really quickly. Like it'll be a very steep incline in terms of how he's going. If his recovery is very gradual, then prognosis is not the best. And I remember in those early days, because I, I didn't have a lot other than, than that piece of information, I had the name of his brain injury. So I started trying to find as much information as I could and I ran a Google search and was looking through everything I could find and found a study in the US from a patient that was around about the same age as Gary who had the same type of injuries, the same kinds of level of severity because it was based on how long he was unconscious for. His recovery was quite gradual in that it had taken him sort of two years to get out of hospital and to be relatively independent but still requiring a quite a high level of care. And so that was my hope, that we would be in a similar position to, to this other guy. But for Gary to be discharged out of hospital within six months and in outpatient therapy was quite remarkable. In the very early days, he was quite frail. He'd lost nearly almost half his body weight and muscle mass. So I got used to seeing him in the bed and less used to seeing him standing up. It was quite sort of confronting the first time I saw them sit him up and then stand him up. He looked like a young old man. So that for the next couple of months, it was almost like watching a child grow up and go through all of their key stages, but on fast forward, even down to the acne on his face. Like he had acne like a teenager all of a sudden and it stayed for a couple of weeks and then it just went away. And it was very odd really to sort of watch that journey. And But he also was making very good progress. There was one point, I think there was probably only a couple of points where he was like, I can't, I can't do this. And it was more around his left arm He'd lost the function of that completely because of the brain injury. And so that took quite intensive therapy to effectively remap his brain to relearn how to move that arm and that limb. And it was also quite painful because he hadn't used it. The arm had, had retracted up and had shortened one of the tendons. So the first priority was to stretch the tendon back out, which was painful, and then relearn how to use that arm. So he probably only lost hope and faith once or twice, but was able to attach himself to a goal quite quickly. So his goal while he was in hospital was, I just want to go home. And as we were sort of getting closer and closer to his birthday, and as he was sort of getting more and more awake and able to converse more and more he was quite clear that he would be home before his 30th birthday and he would not be having a birthday in hospital and I think once he was able to sort of grab at something and attach himself to it he just went for it with everything and I remember telling the neurologist at Westmead at the time he'd done a couple of brain scans he'd said to me that this was I guess and that was probably that couple of months down the track at that point that he had felt that we would get the same personality back he couldn't tell us too much in terms of his function other than he thought that he would regain enough function to be independent again and I almost checked out at the point when he said personality because I said oh he'll be fine is that what do you mean I'm like he will not accept 
being in this bed. He will not accept not being able to do the things that he used to do. And he will just keep going until he can do everything that he used to do. And that's exactly what he's done. And I've forgotten the rest of your question. Basically the recovery for you as well, the journey, how it was on on yourself. I packed my recovery away very quickly. I'm very good at packing away emotions and keeping them in a safe place and not letting them out too much because I don't want to upset people and other people. And in the early days, I think I'd made a conscious decision that I didn't want to be upset around his family, his friends, my family, because that would upset them told myself that if they saw me upset, they would think the worst and they would lose hope. And hope was more important to me at that point. So the first couple of weeks, like obviously the first day and that week was difficult and a lot of emotion spilled out. While we're in Germany, a lot of emotion spilled out, but it was almost like the flight back. I just shifted a gear. And also too, I I did it because I knew that the guys that he was with were already going through so much as well. We were arriving back into Australia just after the third funeral, or no, sorry, just before, because the two liaison officers from the unit that were with us were heading straight off the minute we landed in Sydney to Darwin for the last funeral. So I didn't want to burden any of them. When they got back, the whole platoon sort of arrived to to visit them and I decided that I needed to be a pillar of strength for everybody and that's what I tried to do. So I, I detached myself completely. And I think, I think my, my work helped me do that. You don't get to investigate deaths and get attached. I think that that had helped, but I'd stayed detached for a bit too long. And it wasn't until we started to have our children or started to, to not go through experience miscarriage in a couple of times before we were able to have our children that those emotions that have started reconnecting with me and everything that I'd packed away all those years before was coming out. And I also reflect on my sort of behaviour at the time and at, at points after the accident and when Gary was, was doing okay and, and realised that I thought it was packed away but it was coming out a little bit and at times I wasn't in control and that was mainly around when we were attending funerals because the funerals didn't stop, unfortunately attending other funerals at the regiment, it was all starting to hit home after we had our children and trying to just keep going on with normal life. I realised it probably wasn't normal to hear bagpipes and burst into tears and to hear the national anthem and, and burst into tears and be, you know, almost immediately sent back to those funerals and sent back to the notification and sent back to the thoughts and feelings I was having the day after finding out. So, yeah, I guess I, I try to seek treatment and initially I was in a bit of denial about what was going on too. I had a baby, it was easy to say it was postnatal depression. It made sense to me, but Gary had suspected it was something else. But I didn't actually feel worthy of saying that the accident had affected me because I wasn't there. And it's still not something that sits easy with me to know that 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 was traumatic and that I had involuntary emotional reactions to things and you know would be had intrusive memories never had nightmares but intrusive memories and became quite hyper vigilant about the safety of the children but the treatment that I've been undertaking since has been exceptional and it's working so I'm all good well not all good 80% good better better (laughs) that's right not long later March 2011 the two of you tied the knot April 2011. 
Oh, April 2011. Gary taught us much. I meant to get married in um, October 2010, but um, unfortunately I was still in hospital. So we had to get postponed until that she always forgets on the 2nd of March 2011. That's hilarious because he always has a crack at me for getting the date wrong. So we had to postpone the wedding. We were due to get married in October 2010. I had to put everything on hold because we didn't know how he was going to be at that time. And when he sort of started to do okay, I'd said to him, we can wait, like it's no big deal. We can wait for you to get a bit better. He's like, nah, first available. So this was in October. He made me start pulling everything back together. I'm like, okay. So I had to coordinate multiple bookings to sort of be available on the same day on first available. There was a couple of dates rolling around and he always has a crack at me because I'm like, did we get married on the 2nd or was it the 4th or the 6th? I can't because there was too many dates in my head at the time and he's like, it was the 2nd of April. How many times? You always get it wrong. And um, anyway, so that's funny that he got it wrong. 2nd of April 2011, we, we got married. It was the best wedding I've ever been to and it was also very special for a number of reasons, not just for Gary and I, but we had close friends of ours there at the wedding from the regiment. It was bringing people together for a celebration, which was the first one that they had had. We had the padre from the unit who had been spending his time conducting funerals, conduct our wedding. Six months prior, we had, well, I had lost my grandmother as well, and she'd been an instrumental support while Gary was away. For my side of the family, for Gary's side of the family, for the army family in the room, it was one big party. I still look back on those photos and in particular the farewell photos of when we were leaving that night and there's so much caught up in those photos and it's very much more than just a wedding. And I guess, you know, after everything you've been through, there's no turning back now. We'd practised a lot of the marriage vows before we even, we had them and now that we've got two little kids, it's like, well, there is no turning back because we can get through anything and we will. Definitely overcome an awful lot. We did it together and we did it through making some key decisions and I think it was probably about around the time of our wedding or shortly thereafter where I said to Gary I am sick with all due respects I am sick of talking about this accident I'm sick of talking about your injuries and he was sick of it too because it seemed to be all we talked about with each other with everyone else with doctors with you know, I'd go to work, it's all I would talk about. It's just there was just no escape from it. And I think looking back it was actually a smart decision because we had decided then and there that this was not going to define us. We were not going to be limited by what happened. What we wanted was for what happened to be learnt from because we experienced, or I did, he's still a bit absent from a lot of it, but a lot of gaps in the system of support It's almost sort of become my mission to get out there, understand what they are now, understand if they're still the same or different and and try to work with the system to fill those and to make better for those that come after. And I guess that's why the two of you have shared it, to help change other people that effectively could be in your shoes. That's right. I think we've realised and then even in, you know, my own mental health journey that people are not going to come and save you. Even in the veteran support system, everything can be there, but the linchpin in all of it is you and you have a choice and you have a choice 
to interact or not. You have a choice to look at your situation and accept what's happened and to move forward from that and to learn and to grow from that. In my case, I could go and do my CBT therapy. I could take my pills for the next 30 years and never get any better. Or I could actively engage with my therapy. I could find a therapist. I could find the best treatment. And I could commit myself to it 300% to make sure that the Renee who's talking to you now is not the Renee that I was even two months ago. That individual element of choice, I think you can feel like you don't actually have a lot of the time because you feel like everything around you is so out of control and you can't control anything, but you can still control yourself and you can still control the way you're showing up and the way you're choosing to engage, the way you're trying to make better. I'm grateful that we were able to see that and to go down that path because without that, I don't think we would have grown. I think we would have stayed trapped in 2010. Renee, I've just got to quickly ask, on the shirt you're wearing at the moment, you've got the Invictus Games. Have you and or Gary been involved in them? So Gary was an athlete for two Invictus Games, the ones in Orlando and the ones in Toronto. And in Toronto was the first opportunity that I got to go along and support him and to see him in any of these things. Quite a moving experience for me. It was the first time that families had been really, I'd experienced families being included in much, to tell you the truth, and just getting sort of that involvement. It was also a really special trip because we had a sort of nice group of people that we were over there with. And then the following year when they were in Australia, I was asked to come onto the board for the Sydney Games to represent the views of families or the families in the athlete group on the board. That's a great achievement with the Invictus Games. Would you? Be able to tell us what difficulties or limitations that Gary still has and lives with today. Memory, memory, memory. Um, And there's also some subtleties. So the major things he lives with are a little bit behavioural in terms of letting go. He takes things uh, a lot more personally than what he used to. I need to be more careful with my communication with him. He also tends to get quite overwhelmed quite quickly. So if there's a lot of stimulus going on, kids talking, TV going, lights on, and he's trying to do something else, just can't take it all in, can't concentrate too much. Sometimes that causes an emotional reaction in him. More often than not, it just makes him tired. In the early days, he just used to, at one point, his new sergeant came to visit him. He talked to him for about five minutes. Then he held out his hand. He's like, I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to sleep. See you later, mate. And just rolled over and went to sleep. So now when he gets overwhelmed, he gets quite tired. And I can almost tell almost immediately in his eyes because his eyes start to, to get quite tired. But then he doesn't sleep well. So that's the, the double-edged sword of, of a brain injury is fatigue but not being able to sleep well. That and speech, his speech isn't the same. It's, he's quite self-conscious about it, but he just continues to get better and better. And, you know, iteratively over time, people can notice a big difference in how he sounds and the way that the muscles are working together that they haven't always been able to. And he's also in a fair amount of chronic pain with his, his foot that was crushed, got arthritis that's set in there. But he uses a lot of meditation and mindfulness techniques to deal with the pain. And that's thanks to his guy crush, Curtis McGrath, who I understand also has a guy crush on Gary. 
he explored with him because with the brain injury, he, he obviously started to understand a bit more about his injuries and Curtis losing his legs and the phantom pains that they can get, which are neurological and not actually there and so he he was asking him what he was doing with pain management and how he managed that and and he said oh it's really simple I just tell myself that they're not there so nothing actually hurts and Gary's like oh I wonder if I can try that even though he's obviously he has his foot but he practices a lot of that and tells himself that the pain's not there and he finds that that sort of has a shift and he's able to to sort of get more out of his foot. So the two of you have a couple of children. Five and three. And Gary always said that he wanted to be a stay-at-home dad. I don't think he meant it when he said it. (laughs) We're fortunate because Gary has been able to, since leaving the army, undertake sort of study. And and he tried that part-time, but unfortunately he just, that's another lasting impact. He can't keep pace. He has to take things a lot slower. So with that, he's able to take his studies slow, but we're also able to sort of manage the children between us and we also just want to provide as much of a normal life for our kids as we can so we toyed with the idea of moving closer to family but I think COVID-19 has actually shown us what we're capable of so I think when we've felt like we're bursting at the seams and we can't do any more that we actually could we just needed to reprioritize with what was important. How do you approach the topic and handle it um, when it comes to telling stories about the injuries and the the past? We haven't really talked at any great depth of detail with the kids about his injuries other than if they accidentally jump on his foot and he goes through the roof that they're not in trouble that daddy's got a sore foot. So and, and I think that the brain injuries and the impacts of those are so subtle that they're just too young to understand really. So I actually find myself trying to manage the emotional load of the family and the ebbs and flows of that quite a lot and just trying to sort of intervene so that, you know, if if it's getting too much for Gary, I try to sort of intervene with the kids. If the kids are getting too much, like it's just this, this constant tussle of me trying to jump in. What we have talked about with them because we've not tried to sugarcoat too much. We being in Canberra, we're obviously near the War Memorial. We go to the War Memorial every anniversary of the accident, every Anzac Day except for this year and every Remembrance Day, hopefully this year. So it's something that's meaningful for us. It's something that's important to us. So that our daughter was sort of the first to go, what is this place? Why are we here? What are these flowers? What is this wall? So we explained to her, I guess, in a, the most age-appropriate way we could that you know, when daddy was in the army, there was an accident. He was hurt, but he's okay. But these names are the names of his friends on the wall. And we come to remember them when we come to the war memorial. She's kind of like, oh, okay. Our son is a bit more sensitive. I think he understands, but he gets quite, and it'll be interesting to sort of see in 12 months time how he, how he copes with that. But he, I think he still worries that that daddy's not going to be okay sometimes and so it's just that reassurance that no he's okay because he started asking the same questions so you know we're like oh we'll just do what we did last time (laughs) it's just managing that and the constant reassurance to him that daddy's okay and daddy will be okay and it's all over and daddy's not in the army anymore is there anything you'd like to say to the veterans or the families of veterans who are listening to today's podcast I knew I should have prepared something. (laughs) I think I just want to thank you all 
from the bottom of my heart because everything that you do every day, whether it is still or has been in service to this country, is meaningful and that a lot of you are role models for people out there in your own community that you don't necessarily know about and the community more broadly and that for the families in particular, what you do matters. You are in it for the long haul when it comes to service to this country, whether you are a family member of a current serving member. I think you can sometimes think that your journey ends when your member leaves, but it, it doesn't. It's with you for life. You are very much the front line of this nation's service delivery to veterans and to their well-being and everything you do every day matters and people care, people want to connect with you, people want to talk to you, people want you to share your stories, they want to hear the highs and lows of this life that we all sort of collectively live together but no one actually kind of knows about. And I also think that personally for me, the people that have been there for me, this community has really showed me what family is all about and it's helped me to really identify and identify my values and live them every day. So thank you. I've got to say that we've found your, the two of you, your stories inspiring, both of your strength, your selflessness and everything they've shown over the years from the incident through to today. Thank you for sharing your story and for speaking with us today. Thank you for having us. I'm Thomas Kay and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Our enormous thanks go to Gary and Renee for coming on the show. If you found this conversation moving and insightful, please recommend the podcast to your friends and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And for more insights of partners of military veterans, earlier this season you can listen to my conversation with Samantha Gash in regards to her relationship with her husband, SAS veteran Mark Wales. There's times when Mark will wake up from a sleep and then he'll just say, I had a terrible nightmare. And it'll either be about something that did happen or about a fear of what might have happened when he was out there. Also listen to the interview between Angus Horton and Crystal Callender about her marriage with Army veteran Garth Callender. I read about Australian soldiers being hurt, but it didn't say who. It was actually Garth's sister that then rang me to say that it was him and he'd been injured. Follow this podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, theme music, our track Dynasty Nine, and the vocal mix he does each season by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, Dynasty Nine Guitar Tribute, originally recorded for the For School and Country soundtrack by my friend from school, Dave Matthews. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. Mm-hmm.